Hi there, and welcome to OPG Inspire. This is your host, Robert Roach. Everyone at OPG hopes you had a fabulous Thanksgiving. We know we are thankful for the amazing people we work with and interact with every day, which includes all of you. Uh, Today, I had the pleasure of interviewing James Bundy, who is in his 16th year as the Dean of the Yale School of Drama and is the director of the Yale Repertory Theater. James has produced more than 30 premieres, nine of which have been honored by the Connecticut Critics Circle as Best Production of the Year, and two of which have been Pulitzer Prize finalists. James is a prolific director, and his unique style of leadership has sustained the Yale School of Drama as one of the top in its field. James is thoughtful in his approach to creativity and management, and it was fascinating to tease apart the concepts of entertainment, conflict, and collaboration with him. With that... I hope you enjoy my interview with James Bundy. Um, So we can get started. Uh, Why don't we start with just a quick introduction of who you are and uh, what you're working on right now uh, at Yale, but also in your life? Sure. Uh, I'm James Bundy. I'm the Dean of the Yale School of Drama and Artistic Director of Yale Repertory Theater. And right now I am uh, at Yale Rep producing a production of Native Son, uh, in a, a play by Nambi E. Kelly, adapted from the novel by Richard Wright and directed by Surrette Scott. And uh, on the school side, I'm working hard on a curriculum review and on uh, planning and fundraising for a new campus for the school and a new theater for Yale Rep. So that's a lot going on at the same time. <laughs> that's wild. So um, in, an, in a previous interview, you had mentioned that there was a bit of an internal struggle, or that you have experienced an internal struggle between the administrative and management side of your work and the, the passion-driven side of your work in terms of kind of the creativity of being a director and working in plays. Um, and that you hinted that in a therapeutic context, you need some of that artistic elements in order to really thrive. And so how do you balance that, those passion priorities and those management priorities when you approach your work every day? Well, I think if I'm, if I'm remembering the interview correctly, the one that you spoke about, I, I think I came to a point in my life where I realized that uh, uh, directing was enormously gratifying to me personally and that I had a real interest in serving in that role in the theater but but by the same token um, I'm also really interested in institutional direction and I think of I, I don't think very differently about the project of leadership in a rehearsal room than I think about the project of leadership in an academic institution Wow so is there anything that you leave behind as a dean when you go to be a director oh sure yes you, you know um, uh one of the tricky things about hierarchical organizations uh, and having titles is um, the ways in which people see you purely through the lens of your title, and that can make relationships more or less transactional, depending on the extent to which people see you as the title. Uh, In a rehearsal hall, in particular, um, one needs the actors to feel like absolutely full partners in the creation of what the audience is going to see. And if you think about it in practical terms, 
the actors are who the audience sees. So actors in the in the theatrical event itself have enormous power, much more power than the director does, to shape what the audience's experience is. And you want them to begin exercising that power very early in the process, as opposed to feeling like they're simply receiving the dictates of their quote-unquote leader. So in some ways, you shape those actors to become or to be the leaders of the whole production and they're they're the they're running everything i think they they come with that leadership potential and my job is to in some ways to encourage them to bring it to bear Mm -hmm. so one of the things that happens uh often is that companies of actors will um basically tease me about being the dean and uh and we all make light of, you know, everybody finds a way of making light of the fact that I have positional power because in the creation of art, my positional power is meaningless. Oh, wow. That's so interesting. So do you look for not only the skills of a beautiful voice or someone who can clearly, you know, has a lot of training in acting, but do you also look for those kind of more, those deeper leadership skills and those kind of those deeper, uh, abilities to to bring together the people around them when you're looking at a new cast or something like that yeah i think i think a lot about uh about bringing people into the room who are interested in meaningful and typically multi-generational collaborations right there will be in the most recent play we did we had you know uh actors ranging in age from 11 to 74 does that uh big age difference lead to some problems sometimes or does it make much more diverse environment yeah i think everybody welcomes it i think i think it's fascinating for uh young children to be in rooms with older actors and i think older actors really enjoy the uh the sort of legacy and the sense of apprenticeship and uh, shared purpose that people can have across generations so you see a lot of generosity Mm -hmm. I love that concept of shared purpose when it comes to everyone being on stage for this common goal, right? That's that's really beautiful. Right. Now, um, one thing that I love about the Yale School of Drama is the the mission statement that you have online. And you talk about, um, it's beautifully written, and there's values that in particular cover things like artistry and collaboration and discovery. But it was the description of discovery which really caught my eye and says, we wrestle with the most compelling issues of our time. Therefore, we foster curiosity, invention, bravery, and humor. We risk and learn from failure and vulnerability in order to build lifelong habits of innovation and revelation. And what really struck me is that in this statement, you have the expectation and even the pursuit of conflict and risk. And I thought that, uh, you know, that's because it's built directly in your values. Is that a really important theme to you to find conflict and to find risk and to grow from it? Yeah, well, uh, yes, the uh, conflict is essentially um, the source of all drama, that uh, no play, every play is, every good play uh, is an argument, and the best arguments are the ones that are um, unresolvable in the scope of the production itself, and put the problems into the minds and the hearts and the laps, if you will, of the audience for them to go away and wrestle with. Mm. So uh, George Bernard Shaw famously said, you know, a a good play is one in which you agree with the last person who spoke. Now, when people walk away from the play, is it a success that they feel 
is it a success that they feel uh, some sort of solution has been reached in their mind or that they continue to have a conflict that they have to think about? Excuse me. I think the idea is that you want people to continue to wrestle with uh, a problem or, or more than one problem. So the... Uh, the root of the Latin or the Latin word, which gives us the word entertainment, um, does not mean to pass your time happily. It means to uh, to hold between, to hold yourself between two compelling and conflicting ideas that require you to uh, to to wrestle with the nature of our humanity and and our morality. So possibly in that kind of mentality, the concept of entertainment is synonymous with the concept of growth. If you're not really growing, then are you truly being entertained? Yeah, if you aren't, if you aren't exercising, if your if your muscles are not being stretched or or um, or worked to wrestle with a problem, how can you possibly be growing? And and so and you know, entertainment has essentially been commodified in contemporary culture right to it, it you know at the apotheosis of broadcast television entertainment what was basically what got you from one mm-hmm. uh, from one commercial to the next mm-hmm. um, and so we have in our in our popular culture an idea that entertainment is simply passing time jovially um, but but it's roots in the in the deepest and oldest parts of Western culture are about really grappling with things. Now, these are really powerful concepts. Um, but when you approach your work as a leader and as a dean, do you keep some of these concepts in your mind when you're approaching a really difficult problem? You know, is there something, do you try to put people into a new frame of, a frame of mind to help alleviate a, an issue or to bring some sort of, not jovial, but those concepts of growth through entertainment? you know, into a conversation. Yeah, I'm fortunate in that uh, I work for an organization which uh, draws people who are similarly interested in these complexities. So it's very rare that we have, uh, I've never really been in a knockdown drag out fight with anybody about what was fundamentally right or fundamentally wrong um, we're always in conversations about what's going to optimize the outcomes for our students and we often find ourselves in circumstances where even our own uh, values can be in tension with each other and that we have to resolve a complex issue in a way that um, requires some give and take from all the parties and people are really in the theater People are really used to doing that in part because we tend to work with, we tend to work in uh, in the nonprofit professional theater in America. We tend to work in an undercapitalized situation, which then calls upon the human capital to be more flexible and more inventive and mm-hmm. uh, more committed uh, in order to make the best possible work. Mm. Now, let's. Take, let's um, go from the internal kind of framework to what happens between your work and how it affects the rest of the world. I mean, I would love to quickly talk about um, your most recent play, An Enemy of the People. Um, 
and that, you know, in that kind of dramedy, there's these two brothers and, uh, you know, they're leaders in a small town and they struggle between their obligations to each other and their obligations to society. And um, it seems that a primary conflict is between the personal and the organizational gain and that and between that personal and organizational gain versus the gain to society. So my question for you is, as a leader, how do you with while being financially successful, make your organization into an active political citizen? You know, you want to you want to be able to succeed and not to annoy or create enemies, but you also want to be a citizen or have your organization be a citizen for that can improve your your community. The it's been a you know part of Western culture for the past twenty five hundred years is the notion that it takes um, it takes three groups of people to really make the theater go. One group is uh, the artists. That's obvious. Another group is the audience. And a third group is the patrons. There has effectively always in the Western theater been a cohort of people who took responsibility for providing the money, fundamentally, that uh, allowed this kind of art to happen. That's true of the Greeks, who had a civic leader called the Corrigus, who was responsible for funding the uh, for funding the the annual festivals of plays of new plays, and uh, and the Greeks uh, were careful to reserve seats for every stratum of their society, including the slaves, at the work. So there was a tremendous civic commitment. If you fast forward to the Elizabethan period, um, you know, you could get in to see a show for as little as a penny, which was roughly the cost of a loaf of bread. So there were there was very little price resistance, right? Um, and 2,000 people could fit into the Globe Theater. So they had a robust audience. And at the same time, they the company survived and was able to make a living on royal patronage. So it, t- today, in, a, in the commercial theater model, we now see um, shifting, you know, there, there are, it's possible for the audience to generate um, because, because on, a, on a Broadway show, the show can become such a commodity that it can actually command ticket prices that make it profitable. But for a long time in the theater, uh, the artists actually were the people who subsidized the commercial theater because they weren't paid very well. And, uh, and you know, in the, at the turn of the last century, um, if you were an actor, the producer could come to you and say, your work was terrible this week. I'm not going to pay you. Mm. And that was what gave rise to Actors' Equity Association, which argued for, you know, better work rules, better payment rules, and better wages for actors. Mm-hmm. So there's always been some, there's always some civic component to the making of this work. And... We as artists have a responsibility, I think, to uh, to engage that responsibility directly, which is the reason that of the major art forms in the United States, theater is one of the least well funded, mm. because you know symphonies and paintings and sculptures do not have cuss words in them, and they typically don't really address subjects that are politically charged. So, so. We do, I think, take a risk in the theater because we put actual people on stage having real arguments and often using, um, you know, coarse language. Uh, we run the risk of offending some people. 
but that just comes with the territory. Do you think you have a responsibility in some ways to take that risk? Yes, I think I think uh, I think the theater that invites an audience to confirm its prejudices is not doing its job. So if we aren't taking on the challenge of moving people off the dime they were on when they came into the theater, we haven't stepped up to the plate. And when do you think that as a director, you've truly succeeded? Well, it's a subversive medium, right? So I feel I feel I succeed when I really bring people in and then uh, and then they feel like they've paid a price for that. They've become implicated in the event because they were drawn to the character of Thomas Stockman, say, who is enormously charismatic and witty and right on the facts, but also uh, arrogant and a proposer of exterminations and eugenics. So, um, so that's a complicated mix for an audience to deal with. Uh, and I think if you can if you can surprise people and sort of create a bubble of interest and engagement and involvement, you can take them to a pretty deep place later in the play, mm-hmm. in the sort of in you know, in, in the last say you know, you may get you may get seven to twelve minutes somewhere in there where suddenly people are really uh, really surprised, really deeply surprised at where the play has gone because they didn't see that coming. When you and when you start a big project, a big play, you know, uh, I think that one thing that our listeners would be interested in is, you know, they might have a vision for something, a project, uh, you know, something artistic, something business related, and they need to bring together a group of people who don't know what their vision is yet. What's the first piece of advice that you could give? in order to get people to come together, understand what your vision is, and to really buy into that idea? I think people really respond to stories. You know, there was a, there was a period about 15 years ago where people were saying, well, you know, TV shows and movies are gonna be available on your phone, and people were saying, well, nobody's gonna to wanna to watch that on their phone. And, uh, what I think what people underestimated was that the the power of storytelling, which almost always engages drama in some meaningful sense uh, and argument uh, in good storytelling, the power of storytelling is actually actually just about transcends the medium. And uh, you know, surely fifty years from now, people will be you know getting chip implants that allow them to. Uh, to see stories without having to carry a phone around with them, right? And they'll be self-charging and you'll just, you know, poke your ear and you'll have exactly what you want on your screen. So I, I think I think it's thinking about the story that you want to tell. And a good story has a hook and gets people engaged early, but, but leaves something for the end, too. And you, we see this in marketing all the time, right? People tell us kind of three quarters of the story and then they say, and if you want to know more. James, I think that is all the time we have today. But um, real quick, can you tell us about the the production that you have coming up and when people can look forward to seeing it? Yes, Native Sun is playing from from now 
through December 16th, 2017. And it's at the Yale Repertory Theater at 1120 Chapel Street in downtown New Haven. And people can get tickets at yalerep.org or by calling the box office at 203-432-1234. All right, perfect. I think I'm going to check it out. Thank you so much for your time, James. That was my interview with James Bundy, Dean of the Yale School of Drama and Director of the Yale Repertory Theater. One concept from our conversation that really resonated with me was the expectation and the necessity of conflict to facilitate growth. Just as entertainment, in James's definition, is an experience that holds you between two conflicting concepts or directions, I believe that personal growth also requires the push and the pull of disagreeing forces. An individual without an outside perspective will never question whether their work or their mission can be improved. It is the act of understanding and empathizing with both sides of an argument that will make the final result stronger. So take the time and listen to your dissenters. Pursue empathy, and in the process, you will become a better leader and a better person. Thank you for listening to OPG Inspire. This is Robert Roach, signing off.